Longest Day is a podcast from a female-founded destination practice that believes that crisis isn't an if, it's a when. We are an organization unafraid of crisis, but have never known one to be resolved in a single day. However long the day or night that gave rise to the crisis in the first place, there's always something we can learn. I'm Leah, the founder and CEO of Broadstairs Consulting, a problem-solving consultancy offering crisis and governance advisory services to help leaders and organizations thrive and flourish. We operate in the gap between legal and public relations, at the coalface of difficult situations, believing that most crises are avoidable and the impact of inevitable ones usually can be mitigated. Our guests have overcome a litany of crises. Many of our guests have worked with us in some capacity in the past. All of them have stories worth hearing, We trust them to make this worth your while. We hope it helps you trust us. Today's podcast guest is Andy Haldane, the Chief Executive of the Royal Society of Arts. Andy was formerly Chief Economist at the Bank of England and a member of the Bank's Monetary Policy Committee. Amongst other positions, he is Honorary Professor at the Universities of Nottingham, Manchester and Exeter. He's Visiting Professor at King's College London, a Visiting Fellow at Nuffield College, Oxford, and a fellow of the Royal Society and the Academy of Social Sciences. He is founder and president of the charity Pro Bono Economics, vice chair of the charity National Numeracy, and chair of the National Numeracy Leadership Council. He was the permanent secretary for levelling up at the cabinet office from September 2021 to March 2022, and chairs the government's levelling up advisory council. He has authored around 200 articles and four books. Well, Andy, thank you so much for your time this afternoon on this sweltering afternoon in London. And thank you for coming on The Longest Day. Very happy to do that. Uh, I'm sitting here, not sure whether I'm perspiring or expiring, but I'm certainly very hot and about to get hotter, I feel you. Right. Well, perhaps in the next 20 minutes, we can uh, explore your longest day. Why don't you tell our listeners about that? Yeah, I'm going to cheat on the rules. I hope this is okay. It's too late now if it's not, to be honest. But uh, mine is more um, a 24 hours spread across two days. Uh, and those two days uh, were the 7th uh, and the 8th of October 2008. A long time ago, I know, but I am that old. Uh, and they were, as you might recall, or some of your listeners might recall from the dim and distant past the time of the global financial crisis Um, and the rescue in particular of some of Britain's biggest banks on or around that date. So that that for me was the the longest day, starting really on the 7th when, to be honest, uh, the cash machines were running dry uh, in in Britain's biggest banks and then going over to the 8th when a massive package of support uh, was announced uh, by the government uh, and the Bank of England to prop up the banks and stop the run on the banks that was that was happening. Um, and I was in the thick of that um, over that period as um, one of the bank's representatives on what was at the time a tripartite arrangement, three-way arrangement between uh, the Bank of England, where I worked at the time, uh, looking after financial stability, sort of ha-ha in the middle of a crisis, Uh, the Financial Services Authority, which was a sort of regulator of the banks, 
since abolished, uh, and the Treasury, uh, who were there in their capacity as writers of checks. Uh, and actually, by the 8th, the morning of the 8th, they'd had to write a pretty big check of around £25 billion pounds, uh, to keep the Royal Bank of Scotland, RBS, uh, and Lloyd's Banking Group, and a few more besides, are afl- afloat. So that felt like a very long day or 24 hours, separated by, I suppose, a couple of hours of sleep, but not much more than that. For that tripartite arrangement, the probably 15, 20 people stuck round a table watching this melee play out and then seeking to fix it. What had you experienced in your career to date that equipped you to step up to the plate? Well, I think, you know, thinking around that that table, um, truth be told, there was no one around that table who remotely could have seen anything close to that. In fact, that was probably true of the whole of that global financial crisis period. It's probably one of the reasons we had the global financial crisis, of course, is because anything like that was not within anyone's lived experience. Mm-hmm. Um, the last policymaker or risk manager that had seen a crisis, a banking crisis at all, had long since retired or or died off. So for all, to an extent, we were all making it up a little bit as we were going along. Uh, so all of us had probably spent a good chunk of our careers thinking about finance, thinking about banking, thinking about crises, reading about bank runs. Did that help in making sense of things? A little bit. (laughs) Uh, Did that prepare you for the speed and the severity of this just coming to life, Mm. right? And playing out, you know, um, not just day by day, but hour by hour, minute by minute. There was one moment, it was on the... um, so on the 7th, the evening of the 7th, which actually did run into, run into the morning of the 8th, as it turns out, uh, we were agreeing by how much, how much money should we put into the banks to stop the run on them? And lots of toing and froing around uh, that. Uh, conscious that we probably did need to announce something the next morning if we were to kind of staunch the flow of monies mm. out of the banks. And we sort of... We're getting close to arriving at a, a number that then needed to go back and be signed off by the ministers because it was a big number. It's a lot of money. Uh, and then we resumed on the uh, the morning of the 8th, uh, again, very early, uh, hopefully before markets, at or around markets opening, just to sort of um, decide for sure what the details of this package would be. I've just been sat in that in that room. And um, we were discussing, and uh, markets had opened. Uh, and in the first half hour of that meeting, I think the share price of the Royal Bank of Scotland, Br- Britain's biggest bank at the time, fell 50, 50% in the first 30 minutes of that meeting. It then rose 50% in the second 30 minutes because some announcements were being made about what we might do. And uh, if someone had told me, or if I'd read in a textbook that that might happen, I wouldn't have believed. I wouldn't have believed you, to be honest. So, yes, we were prepared. Yes, we knew the numbers. 
yes, we'd read about events like this, but gracious, it was absolutely nothing like living that in real time and knowing that you had to act. Otherwise, that 50% fall would have been 70% or 80% and the whole thing mm -hmm. may have unraveled completely. So um, professionally prepared is one thing. Experiencing it in practice is quite another. With my lawyer hat on, all I can think of are teams and teams of people in different rooms, running between rooms, trying to finalise documents to get things across the line. Did you know the people that you were negotiating these tripartite agreements with, or was this kind of the first meeting of those minds? Well, some of them, yes. So um, there were lots of, you know, we had a, at that stage an institutional structure, a tripartite institutional structure, which meant we meant we met regularly anyway to talk about financial stuff, even to run crisis games, actually. Um, but I think the, <laughs> I think about crisis games are they are games. Uh, and they stop when the game stops. Uh, this one wasn't a game. It didn't stop at five o'clock. Um, and yeah, you know, one of the crisis games you'd run pre-crisis was actually a game quite like Northern Rock. Um, and we'd reached at five o'clock and hadn't found a solution. But then we stopped and said, oh yeah, never mind. Um, and this was so different because the game was for real, it didn't stop, and we couldn't afford not to have a solution to it. So there was, there was lawyers in the room, um, private sector advisors, as well as uh, government officials from those three bodies I mentioned, a fair amount of running in and out. Um, we were the officialdom, and of course the key running in and out was to our political masters, who were making ultimately the big decisions about putting money on money on the line. I don't think it was... Uh, so the people I largely knew uh, and hugely respected, and that made a, a massive difference. Were there differences of view? Absolutely. It would have been truly extraordinary had there not been differences of view, certainly on the 7th. But by close of play on the 7th, rolling into the 8th, we knew we needed to land somewhere the time for debate was over. The time for fine-tuning this was over. We just needed a big number. So let's just decide the big number and crack on. At that point, there was a, a congealing, a pulling together, uh, which was very powerful. Um, and that's where the relationships kicked in and really mattered then. With the severity of the consequences for not resolving the situation and the weight of responsibility on your shoulders, how did you attribute the risk of the decision between you? Yeah, so um, the I think there was definitely a, within the room and outside of the room, you know, a very acute awareness that the consequences of getting this wrong would be felt by absolutely everyone in the UK, with no exceptions, because, you know, almost everyone does have a bank account. Uh, almost everyone was reading the newspapers and the TVs, screaming blue murder about bank runs and was your money safe? Uh, everyone, I think, uh, was worried uh, about what was to happen um, Next, of course, there's a subtly different balance 
uh, of interests around different parties around the table. So you know, if you're a you know God-fearing Treasury official, you know if you write a cheque for £25 billion today, you're going to be asked in Parliament and indeed in public for many years to come, why £25 billion? Is that money well spent? How to prevent that trickling into the pockets of 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 rich bankers rather than poorer people. So absolutely, that's your lens on the problem because uh, that's to whom you'll be held um, account. If you're a regulator of a bank, then your job is to stop them failing or at least stop the failure damaging depositors and businesses. You've got a subtly different set of um, considerations. If you're the Bank of England, and I, at the time I was the Bank of England, not all of it, but a little <laughs> part of it, um, your concern is that the system as a whole uh, doesn't fall to pieces. Less about individual banks, more about the whole system. So we brought our different lenses to the problem, but the truth is such was the gravity and scale of the crisis that all of those stakeholders, all of those perspectives were equally valid. We were triangulating between needs of individual firms, needs of the system, needs of taxpayers ultimately, um, and it was the the sort of the coming together of those three perspectives that, that led to the solution we landed on. Are you feeling stuck? Has conflict got you down? Have you considered mediation? Mediation is a confidential and flexible way to resolve conflicts. 86% of all mediations end in a solution, saving time, money, and stress for all involved. Thanet Mediation Centre, a Broadstairs consulting initiative, offers mediation services to individuals and organisations in Thanet, Kent and further afield. For more information or advice, email us at info at broadstairsconsulting.com. We are here to help you move forwards. One of the things we're particularly interested in is how fear impedes leaders' ability to lead well. Was there any sense of needing to manage other people's risk aversion or fears or insecurities in those meeting of the minds? Um, I think when it, when it reaches that stage, I think you lose some of your fearfulness, to be honest. Um, something kicks in, you know, the, the importance, the momentousness of the moment. You know, the, the gives you a funny sort of clear-headed precision about what needs doing. Uh, I think that was, I think that was, I think that was true. Uh, in that in that particular moment, I mean, we could have discussed what is the right number. We had been discussing from, I mean, backing up a bit. In the at least six months prior to that day, we'd been in active discussion as a tripartite about how much money needs to be put into British banks to stop them falling over. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, as the person who'd um, been running the numbers for the bank on how much money was needed, we'd been making the case for the whole being at least £50 billion for at least six months. And up until about a week before we did it, had convinced no one. Um, And... You know, that wasn't an ideal situation to be in. You know, the the regulator was fearful that any hole would be seen as a as a blight on their on their record. The Treasury was fearful 
because this might be seen as a big bailout of a bank and the banks were the bad boys, mostly was boys, um, at the at the time. So those individual motivations or fears did shape the debate right up until you know, it became very clear that this is a problem that wouldn't be solved without a big check being written and a big hole being plugged. Mm. At that point, it all became a little bit easier. Maybe it was the market that drove us there, but the market having driven us there led to, a, I think, a moment of um, real clarity and determination and indeed coordination to do the right thing. And as you reflect on your own performance, what would you say that you learned about yourself through that experience? Well, I mean, um, there's a degree of stamina in all this uh, and a degree of, I think, you know, sticking um, to your guns and, and, and relying on the analysis you've done ahead of time. I mean, I was lucky, we were lucky that we'd been putting in the patient preparation um, for this for at least six months prior. Yeah, how much was needed to plug the gap? Mm. As it turns out, we didn't do enough to plug the gap. We, we were making the case for 50, it was more like 25, right? So that stands you in good stead. I mean, I think if you're making this up on the fly, if you haven't done the patient preparation, it's much harder to make your case in a compelling and convincing way. So what it taught me about me, it taught me really was um, do your homework, uh, do the analysis, run the numbers, reach a view, have that, have that view backed up as rigorously as you can um, by the analysis, by the data. Now, of course, you're going to trim around that, right? Of course, you may not land exactly where you thought, circumstances change and all that, but if the central view was one, there's a hole, and two, it's a whopper, uh, and three, it's roughly this, give or take, you are 98% of the way there. And then you argue the toss about the 2%, and that's just fine. So that would be the, you know, patient preparation, patient preparation. You can never know when the balloon will go up, when the crisis will strike. It's a mugs game trying to predict that. What you can say with conf some confidence is that at some stage, the patient preparation will pay off because that moment will come and when it comes patient preparation is all we often get parachuted into situations that lack that preparation yeah what would you say to the leader who is entirely ill-equipped and finds themselves in a crisis yeah and that absolutely can happen um some things sometimes some things come from left field you can't anticipate everything and, and, and sometimes uh, what you hit hit by, you know, COVID's a case in point actually. Um, uh, who would have thought? And then it was everything. It was nothing, then it was everything. Um, I mean, those situations, actually, even if the crisis is different, the crisis experience is not. So uh, the truth is the people around that table that day, the senior ones, and some of the less senior ones, packed in about 20 years worth of experience into 24 hours. Uh, and that is an experience that will that is and would last with them throughout their careers. One of the reasons on the outside people would say, you're a bit slow-footed with that global financial crisis, and there's some truth to that, I think. 
because we didn't have the twitch muscle, that fast reflex that you need in crisis situations. Um, the good news is that when other crises came along, I mentioned the COVID crisis, that twitch muscle had been practiced, it had been prepared, and we all remembered it. And that made it easier to change gears, to go from first gear to fifth, missing out the ones in between when it came to decision-making. Knowing the feel of a crisis, having the intuition, the nose for a crisis, an instinctive sense of what needs doing, I think is all the difference in the, is all the difference in the world, actually. And even when the precise form of that crisis is a surprise, the instinct still remains about what you might do. So that's what I'd say to, you know, I'm not saying try and fit as many crises in as possible. Uh, but it doesn't have to make a difference, uh, whether you're young or old, uh, actually, to just know what it feels like and to not be phased by what it feels like. And how have your years being a leader in finance helped you with what you're doing now? Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, hopefully my, my, my new, um, newish gig here at the RSA is less about dealing with, um, crises, banking or, or or otherwise, but it is about public service, it is about public policy, it is about shaping social impact and shaping better outcomes for, for people in society. That's why I'm here. That's what I do for a living, albeit in different places. Um, so what it's really taught me, you know, my long time at the Bank of England, 32 years uh, at the bank, is a couple of things really I'd say earlier. One is that... Radical change, system-wide change, uh, is always possible. In some ways, uh, we structurally underestimate how much we can change and how quickly we can change it. It's actually particularly true at crisis time. I mean, one of my learnings and lessons, I had the good fortune over my 32 years of um, experiencing a sort of whole sequence of crises. It sounds like an odd sort of blessing, odd sort of endowment, but it's absolutely as I see it. Because one, it gave me a sort of instinct. I, mean, I was pretty lucky because ahead of the global financial crisis, domestically, I'd spent quite a few years working on financial crises in emerging markets. So I felt like I had some nose for them, some feel for them, even though they were on distant shores. But in some ways, my, the whole of my bank career was defined by things going not, not well. Uh, and that was the ultimate learning experience. And it taught me, one a little bit about having a nose for a crisis, but two, as importantly, what to do off the back of it and how you can affect long-lasting radical change off the back of a crisis. The, the overturn window of opportunity uh, is cast open at, at those moments. People lose their bearings. They don't want the old, but they haven't defined the new. Or in the words of Gramsci, I think it is, the old has died, but the new has yet to be born. In that moment between the two, um, provided you've done your patient preparation back to those words, you can pour in your own thoughts and ideas about how the world might be different. You know what? It's a decent chance people might listen to you because, you know, in that vacuum, good ideas can stick and you can change the contours of debate quite quickly. And I tried to do that off the, I mean, off the back of the global financial crisis. That's just what I did. I tried to change the shape of the regulatory debate, not just me, but we bank with some success in the moment when others have lost their bearings, 
we still had some and that helped no end. So that'd be a big learning, I think, from, from crises generally and from the global financial crisis in particular. That is really helpful. I promised you a red herring question. Here it is. Oh, no. If you had to live your longest day again, what food would you choose to fuel it? Oh, um, without any question or shadow of a doubt, um, it would be seafood. I mean, if only because that is my favourite um, food. I mean, I tend to, um, I don't think I'm alone at all, uh, at moments of um, stress and anxiety, I tend to lose my appetite uh, and actually find it very difficult to eat anything at all. So it had to be something pretty appetising um, to entice me. And I can think of nothing more appetising than, than seafood. So I think it'd have to be that. I couldn't agree more with everything that you have said. Thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing your experiences so candidly. And thank you for just being with us on The Longest Day. I've really, really enjoyed it. Uh, thanks very much. And, um, and look forward to listening to all the other podcasts as well. That's what I like to hear. A shout out for previous episodes. Thanks again. You've been listening to a Broadstairs Consulting Limited podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Tune in soon to hear the next installment of The Longest Day. Copyright 2023. Production copyright. Broadstairs Consulting Limited. All rights reserved. Thank you.